0: Hello and welcome to the Anthill podcast from The Conversation with me, Annabelle Bly. This is the final part of our recovery series, where we explore how the world rebuilt after historic crises. We've come a long way from the Black Death in the 14th century. This episode brings us to the present day. I'm going to be taking a look at the 2008 global financial crisis, and spoiler alert, the rather slow and painful recovery that we've all lived through. With me to explain what's been going on over the last decade or so, and what it means for the coronavirus recovery ahead, are three experts. Anastasia Nezvetilova is Professor of Political Economy at City University of London. Hello. We've also got Aidan Regan, Associate Professor in Political Economy at University College Dublin. Hi. And Carolina Alves, who is the Joan Robinson Research Fellow in Heterodox Economics at Girton College at the University of Cambridge. Hello. But first, let me set the scene. The 2008 financial crisis resulted in the worst global recession since the Second World War. The trigger was the collapse of US investment bank Lehman Brothers in September 2008, which caused a meltdown of the global financial system. Money markets froze and there was a major credit crunch as the ability to borrow money suddenly dried up. But the crisis had multiple underlying causes. It followed years of excessive risk taking by bankers and lax government regulation. This had fueled a U.S. housing market bubble and glut of other dodgy investments. When Lehman went bankrupt, taking 700 billion U.S. dollars in liabilities with it, markets panicked. To stop the contagion and make sure other financial institutions didn't collapse, governments stepped in to shore up the system by bailing out the banks. Anastasia, I'm going to start with you. You've written a couple of books at least at my last count, on the financial crisis. Could you start by briefly explaining what these bailouts involved and and why they were so necessary?
1: Yes, gladly. I think I should make a very nuanced observation that the crisis actually was happening over time. It was a process. It was initially supposed to be a very short-term and localized crisis in American mortgages in 2007. The whole thing started in about spring 2007, when several mortgage lenders started to go down in America. The reason they started to go down is that there was a very small increase in interest rate in the States. And at that point, a lot of homeowners um, and then lenders realized they're not making the financial ends meet. They were not prepared. They were not equipped enough to pay the new interest rates. And also house prices in America simply stopped growing. They didn't even fall. They stopped increasing at a particular rate. And that was enough to set off the first, if you want, wave of market I wouldn't call it a shock, but the first turbulence started back then. But then it would take a year from the first market turbulence to actually bankers' banking crash, what you call the credit crunch of 2008, to mature into the small, all-encompassing internationalised crisis. The bailouts started in, indeed, the big bailouts in 2008. It was a political decision, equally, to bail somebody out and not to bail somebody out. That's why Lehman wasn't bailed out. That's why several American private institutions were not helped by credit injections. And that's how governmental programs, known, for example, as TARP, were authorized by the governments, because suddenly politicians realized that if we're not bailing out the banks, we're facing a 1930s disaster or worse because banks are strategically important for any economic system. Could you just very briefly explain
0: what TARP is?
1: TARP was the Troubled Asset Recovery Programme. That's the acronym. That's what it stands for. And it's basically an exchange of governmental loans for taking on the bad credit that banks, or bad debt that banks had incurred during the boom years. They provided their bad assets to the public balance sheet. They took loans in return, and the political mistake was, most analysts acknowledge that these uh, bailouts were given out or authorized without any particular conditions.
0: Yeah, I mean, I guess it's it's probably worth noting, like you said, there was it was a political decision initially not to bail out Lehman Brothers. It was Republican government in office in the states at the time, and I guess there was pressure to to not step in and influence. The market, but then when things started escalating, when Lehman collapsed, uh, they were suddenly like, "Okay, we've got to, we've got to get involved." To what extent did the bailouts succeed in in their mission to to kind of shore up the system?
1: Uh, they succeeded in the short term objective, uh, not to let the economies fall completely. They succeeded in keeping the credit flow, the liquidity of the system going, which is absolutely important in times of any crisis or paralysis. Any business need, needs liquidity. Any bank needs liquidity. We all need to to be a small particle in the wider credit system in order to function, uh, not just as individual consumers, but as, a, as an economic, if you want, community. So you can imagine that at uh, kind of national or international levels, all that need is even higher and sharper. Everybody needs to have access to the credit line, an extension to, uh, for example, a mortgage or a loan, a particular certainty on conditions, how they're going to repay, where to borrow, how to to use your capital, how to negotiate with creditors and what to say to shareholders. These are incredibly important decisions and they depended on these bailouts. So because banks were saved, a lot of these... Decisions and participations where it was possible to proceed with them. So the economy wasn't paralysed. What was of limited use is the way banks handled these bailout packages or the, the way they really didn't pass them on. In, in economic theory, the banks were supposed to keep lending, to invest in the real economy, to find businesses to, to give the credit to. And the, and by that means business will be hiring new people, paying wages, kind of the overall cycle of consumer demand or aggregate demand will, will get a kickstart. That didn't happen because of the low interest rates, because of the conditionality of, of programs, because of you, if you want the financialization stage of all economies. Uh, what happened is that the cheap credit went into assets. These assets became even more expensive, making a lot of people who own these assets very rich, and people who don't have
0: access to that particular ownership are relatively poor. Is it worth sort of saying that one of the major policy responses by central banks or, or by governments was to slash interest rates and the idea being that it would it would encourage spending. Could you sort of explain what the knock-on effect of that was? The knock-on effect is that in the environment of low interest
1: rates, everybody who has capital or a particular asset or, in fact, investment in the financial future, for example, pension funds, we all are somehow related to a pension fund. That That's our... Futurity, that's our capital for when we get old. They needed assets to keep their capital in because the real economy didn't generate income because interest rates were low. They were looking for financial assets to invest it in. And this is where the money went. This is where most of the financial flow went since 2008. The the sector that has grown massively globally is the so-called wealth management industry or wealth management sector, which essentially is the asset management part of the financial economy of the of the
0: world. And we've also seen things like house prices as an asset kind of skyrocket as people spend. Correct. Property is a financial asset. That's absolutely correct. Yeah. If we were to talk about GDP growth or economic growth, how has that recovered? It's been slow. It's been particularly
1: slow since about 2011 in in the Eurozone and in the UK, mostly accounted for by severe austerity measures. Here in the UK, after the the coalition government was replaced by Osborne and um, Cameron, and in continental Europe, it's mostly centered on reluctance of Germany to forego austerity. So austerity as a fiscal measure really shrunk the potential of the economy and contracted any hope for a rapid growth. So there was some recovery, it was feeble, but it was A, fragmented, and B, severely constrained by this, what what they call a fiscal uh, regime, or very strict austerity policy.
0: And just to briefly explain what austerity is, before um, I bring in Aidan to, to kind of talk us through what went on in the Eurozone, could you give a brief... Synopsis of kind of what austerity actually looked like.
1: Austerity is the paradigm, if you want, of tightening your belt. If uh, a family is uh, hitting hard financial times, of course, this particular family has to cut on its uh, spending, to be very prudent with how it uses its one source of income, and to you know limit or, or delete particular items of expenditure that might be too luxurious or profligate at this particular difficult time. And this is the paradigm that a lot of right-wing or, if you want, neoliberal, neoclassical economists like to push politically to the level of the state. They compare any state, any nation to this particular family, saying, once we hit hard financial times, we need to tighten our belt. Usually it means uh, fiscal restrictions. That means either higher taxes or uh, less governmental expenditure on this aggregate demand on the overall economy. Less governmental investment, less public sphere, less investment in infrastructure, less borrowing. Um, Every item of governmental presence as an economic agent needs to be contracted. It's a flawed paradigm because no state and no government can ever be compared to a family simply because it has a currency, it can borrow, it has a variety of sources of income, it can tax, it, it's it's simply different levels of complexity. But it's politically and intuitively a very easy idea to sell to the populations, um, because that's how people live in their daily life. This is how most of us operate as as
0: households. And I'm hoping we can return to the sort of austerity idea and the extent that governments should take on debt or the extent that governments should engage in deficit spending. Uh, A bit later on, particularly as we turn to the lessons from the 2008 recovery for for how we approach the coronavirus recovery ahead. But before we do that, I wanted to to bring in Aidan to talk about the eurozone recovery and also, you know, why was it that a mortgage crisis in the US led to what we call the the eurozone debt crisis?
2: Yeah, sure. Building on what was just said, I think the starting point is to observe that for the mortgage crisis in the United States of America was the trigger for what was a transatlantic banking crisis. And I think in order to understand the, the transmission mechanism from the kind of mortgage banking crisis in the USA, true to what happened in the European Union and more concretely in the Eurozone, is to recognize that these global capital markets are integrated internationally. At the beginning of the kind of Eurozone crisis, it was rather convenient for policymakers in the European Union and in certain member states like Germany and France to kind of describe this as a British or American financial neoliberal crisis, whereas in reality it was a global banking crisis and French, German, Dutch, Irish, British, American, uh, Spanish banks were all interconnected through the global money markets. So what happened in most Eurozone countries was not that different to what was happening in the United States or even to a certain extent in the U.K., Private banks borrowed excessively at relatively low interest rates and lent that money out into relatively unproductive assets and for the most part it was ended, it ended up in, in housing it ended up as a kind of mortgage market boom. But because in Greece it was a slightly different story and it was qualitatively different in that it actually was the state the government itself, was closely connected to certain banking interests and so forth. And, you know, what began as arguably a smaller fiscal crisis within Greece set the stage and set the narrative, more importantly, for how the eurozone would justify and discuss and legitimate its response. So Greece arguably had a fiscal crisis, although we could even debate that in itself. But in Ireland, it was very much a mortgage crisis. Banks had borrowed excessively, lent into the mortgage market. House prices went up to the roof when the money markets dried up. Basically, lending dried up and there was a collapse in property prices, a fall in revenue and a contraction of economic growth and, and an unprecedented recession. Not that different to what happened in Spain. But fundamentally, the eurozone crisis would be called a sovereign debt crisis. So I think the really important question here is, how was it possible that a transatlantic banking crisis that took place within private financial markets turned into a sovereign debt crisis of the public sector? And I think that's the crucial point. And how that happened was because ultimately the Eurozone was 19 different countries uh, issuing currency uh, over which they had limited control. And the European Central Bank's reluctance initially in 2008, 9, 10 to kind of intervene in the same way that the Federal Reserve did meant that ultimately financial markets were able to pick off individual uh, member states at will. You had a divergence in the capacity of member states to borrow. The increasing bond deals between countries, and ultimately the ability to service public debt to cover the crises, to to, to kind of to match the drop in in taxes that came with the recession became much more problematic. So the eurozone crisis was really a crisis of an incomplete monetary union of 19 different countries with 19 different tax and spend policies, 19 different welfare states, 19 different banking sectors, Uh, and then the uh, the realization that they were sharing the same currency and had a common monetary policy of sorts, uh, and the ECB's inability arguably to inter- immediately because of the legal restrictions of the European Union meant that everything began to fall apart until 2012, when the ECB eventually and belatedly intervened.
0: Right. So it was in 2012 that that Mario Draghi stepped in by saying that, that the ECB would back up all the various Eurozone countries.
2: Yeah. And I think it's interesting, basically, what Mario Draghi did in 2012, late 2012, which again not by coincidence was in front of a gathering of hedge fund managers and other private financial actors he aggressively communicated in a very transparent way that the ECB was willing to do whatever it takes to save the euro and it was that simple communication that signal from the european central bank that it would ultimately act as a lender of last resort put the plug into the bath effectively to stop everything from falling apart and would do what the Federal Reserve did, engage in mass quantitative easing, although many of the instruments that it suggested it would do, it never actually had to do. It just simply had to signal to financial markets that it would be willing to do it if necessary. That's ultimately what stopped the the sovereign debt crisis because from that point on, the ability of member states to borrow to access finance markets became more uh, affordable. And ultimately, the politics subsequently followed, and we can get into what happened subsequently. But yes, it was that signal in 2012 that the European Central Bank would become a lender of last resort. It would use the instruments uh, of uh, monetary policy to engage in quantitative easing, provide the liquidity that's necessary, push down interest rates and create a convergence of bond deals between member states and allow them to effectively act as if they were issuing a currency over which they had control.
0: So we've got the ECB stepping in and basically stopping the unraveling of things. What about that, the kind of the response that followed and the fact that we've seen such a divergent recovery across the Eurozone since twenty twelve?
2: Yes. So the ECB, keep in mind, was a member of the Troika, the European Central Bank, the European Commission, and the International Monetary Fund, who during this period issued non-financial loans with strict conditions attached, to Ireland, to Portugal, to Greece. And it was The ECB only acted, the truth be told, in 2012 because it looked like this contagion was going to spread to the bigger countries of Italy and Spain, and these countries were simply too big to let fall in the same way that smaller countries could fall. So they had a, let's say, policy package or an instruction sheet for member states to follow to generate economic recovery. And central to this was kind of the European Commission in particular. And the the instruction sheet was simplistic and parsimonious, if not completely economically flawed. It was basically as follows. You don't have your own currency. Therefore, you cannot adjust your external exchange rate to encourage competitiveness or a drop in prices. Therefore, you have to stimulate or simulate an internal devaluation. And what that means, in effect, is pursue fiscal austerity, that is, push down public expenditures or increase taxes or do both try to encourage labor costs to go down in the interest of trying to generate an export-led recovery. So the whole idea of internal devaluation was push down the price of production domestically within your country, hope ultimately that businesses will begin to sell more stuff to other countries somewhere else in the world, and that would do the heavy lifting for the government to pursue relatively harsh austerity measures. Now, I think there is a near consensus at this stage, even within senior policymaking circles of the European Union, that this was a complete failure. That this policy instrument and this kind of recipe, if you like, was never going to work. It was never going to work precisely as Anastasia had outlined, that when you contract the economy in this way and there's no demand somewhere else in, in the world or domestically, you're going to get a pretty serious spike and rise in unemployment and you get a vicious circle again. So the recovery that did eventually take place was very uneven. And I think it's fair to say that in countries like Italy, the recovery never took hold and still has not taken hold. And that's before the impact of the COVID-19 crisis. Now, interestingly, Ireland, as a relatively small and hyper-globalized economy, an island economy, off the coast of the mainland European Union and Britain, was the country that was held up as the kind of poster child, the the example of how to generate the conditions for recovery. And in the narrative that the European Union put across, Ireland was a successful story because the government basically introduced harsh austerity measures. The people took the pain and eventually they increased their competitiveness and managed to grow their economy through external exports. uh, And that's what led to recovery. In reality, what actually happened was foreign direct investment mainly from Silicon Valley and the United States of America, made possible through quantitative easing measures within the United States of America, led to a massive influx of inward investment, particularly in big tech companies, made possible by a very lucrative, low-tax corporate tax regime, and, and generated the conditions for a kind of computer service export boom that has effectively generated the engine of growth for the Irish economy. So it was all about foreign direct investment into the Irish economy and nothing to do with austerity other countries within the European Union or concretely within the eurozone simply do not have those conditions this is something that is qualitatively unique to the growth model uh, that exists within Ireland
0: and i guess uh, as much as that has been a success story for some people uh, it's 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 probably not benefited everyone
2: yes and again when we talk about everyone we could look at this within Ireland in terms of the kind of regional imbalance so the, the big tech investments the kind of high tech FDI firms, the multinational corporations, that generate it's true good incomes and good conditions for for those who work in those sectors are very concentrated in Dublin City, uh, and you do have other pharmaceutical biotechnology companies based in Cork and Galway. So there's an intra-regional uh, geographic inequality, which is not that different, I think, to most high-tech export economies, whereby international firms these days increasingly focus in in, in large metropolitan areas. But then there's also a broader inequality within the eurozone, French German. Spanish, Italian citizens could rightly feel aggrieved that big tech companies in Ireland are are basically registering the sales within their countries into subsidiaries based off the company within Ireland, which turns up as an export or a gain in income for Ireland actually is something that took place in another country. And of course, that's the whole question of uh, wealth chains and corporate tax avoidance.
0: Yeah. And I guess like for us doing this series on recoveries, 2008, we find ourselves in an incredibly globalised world where, you know, international finance is all connected and investment in one country affects investment in other countries. Um, and I, I wanted to bring in Carolina now just to, to kind of get that really global s- scope. So broadly speaking, Carolina, would you be able to talk us through how, how this global financial crisis affected different emerging markets? Yes, of
3: course. As Anastasia has mentioned, international liquidity is always a problem, regardless of any crisis. And this does impact these uh, developing economies, especially uh, economies such as Brazil or Argentina, that they are not only deeply integrated in the global financial system, but they also have an intense flow of private capital, uh, which can, of course, flee the country um very quickly. That said, the impact on these economies were very different than the impact we saw in Western developed economies. We can say that it was a much more nuanced impact. I mean, their banks, they are not holding assets that were contaminated by these prime mortgage uh, assets, at least not to the extent uh, which we saw in Europe. So as a consequence, we did not see these bank failures we saw in, in the US and uh, in Europe. However, you know there are other transmission channels that we have to consider when looking to developing countries, Uh, and that's, you know, was through these different channels that the crisis did travel to these economies. And there there are various channels here, but I'm going to highlight two only. The first one is, of course, the changes we saw in the financial flows towards these economy and the other aspect is how capital that were in these economies and then just left these economies very abruptly. and the, the developing countries they are different right we have low income high income we have so many different ways to classify these countries regarding the level of industrialization and, and, and etc so you know they are dependent on different capital flows for example we saw a reduction in in official development assistance we also had a reduction in investment flows more broadly from the portfolio perspective and the foreign direct investment perspective. And one aspect of these financial flows that's not enough highlighted is the remittances one. Remittances has become one, I mean, literally one of the most important part of the financial flows to developing countries since the 2000s. So, you know, all these flows, they, they actually experience a, a reduction, and that's how the crisis traveled to these economies. At the same time,
0: were there sort of speculators who were moving into this space? And maybe not speculators, just at the sort of individual level, but at the sort of country level. So I'm, I'm sort of thinking of the growth of China here and its growing involvement in investing and, and influencing what's going on in the world. Well, before the crisis, you know, China had already emerged as this major
3: player in the world economy. And China was very important for developing economies when it comes to the commodity prices, but also the demand for commodities, right? So, And that actually goes back to the second aspect of how the crisis traveled to developing countries, which is uh, how it impact impacted the export and, of course, the export uh, revenues. So I, I think in that sense, China was somehow, how, you know, really supporting uh, the growth we saw in developing economies. Because basically, not only because of uh, China is directly involved in how the commodity prices will fluctuated, and, and here I'm talking about copper, nickel, plutonium, petroleum, but also soybeans and etc., which we see in Africa, but also in, in Latin America. So we also know that these countries, you know, that their, their, the economic growth we saw during the 2000s, In these countries, they were dependent on these commodities, right? So the minute that China would slow down or somehow being negatively impacted by the crisis, then, of course, we'd see that in these uh, developing economies. And that's what happened. Because... We had this idea that China was somehow (laughs) protected when the crisis happened. And indeed, of course, it was to a certain extent. But we cannot forget to go back to your question uh, regarding GDP. At the time, we were all jealous that 2008, the growth rate in China was 9.6, or 2009, 9.2 when compared to other economies. But actually, in 2007, that growth rate was 14 Point two. So it was a huge drop, which did impact the demand for commodity, which did impact the commodity prices. And then, of course, that impact how these countries were able not only to grow, but to feel a little bit more protected, to have a caution regarding, for example, foreign reserves to, to play and, and protect them from this uh, volatility regarding international liquidity.
0: Thank you, Carolina. I just want to bring the discussion to how all of this Impacts what the kind of recovery ahead will look like. Obviously, 2008 was a banking crisis, whereas what's going on today is very much a drying up of, of the real economy. Maybe I could direct that at you, Aidan. How does the, the economic crisis that coronavirus poses differ to 2008?
2: The way I would think about this is to trace it back to the political fallout from the international financial crisis. We didn't talk too much about that and the kind of political backlash that took place and the multifaceted forms that it took place in, in different countries. And, you know, countries, I think, are still economically and politically dealing with the wounds, if you like, of the international financial crisis. So the fact that we have this additional Corona COVID crisis and the unemployment effects in particular, uh, and, the, and, and it, it, I think is going to amplify a lot of those latent tendencies in our politics. And I think those the amplification is probably going to take place precisely because of the actions, again, of the central banks. So much like the financial crisis, the crisis today is ultimately being solved by the central banks of the world. And if I can just focus in on Europe for a moment, in the Eurozone, the European Central Bank is ultimately doing all of the heavy lifting. It has made possible countries to borrow, to make the investments, to stimulate their economies, to pay for the recovery. But at some point, somebody is going to ask, what's going on in monetary policy? The central banks of the world have basically torn up the instruction sheet of of monetary policy. They are effectively engaged in a whole set of new instruments which could arguably be called fiscal policy. And then the question is, well, who wins and who loses from that? And I think really the way forward now is to politicize the question of monetary policy, make it explicit that monetary policy is intervening in the economy in ways that nobody would have foreseen a few years ago. And then we ask the question, well, is it possible to have a monetary policy that's public regarding, that doesn't ultimately inflate the assets? Uh, values and, 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 and the wealth of the wealthiest and actually allows for a more broad-based uh, redistributive recovery and I think that's the crucial question now.
0: Thanks Aidan. Anastasia from your perspective how is the situation today different to the 2008 banking crisis and what are some of the lessons that we can learn from that non-recovery?
1: Uh, Wow, that's a a both important and difficult question because the situation is different in some way or in many important ways. I think on a positive side, one of the effects of 2008 was suddenly that people, even in communities that are not traditionally sceptical in economic terms, the regulators, politicians, some economists, had been expecting a next crisis soon they suddenly, after 2008, they acknowledged that a massive systemic ba- breakdown can occur in capitalism. That is quite unprecedented. It didn't happen before. Never. Because crises were usually a disease of emerging markets, of countries that are not properly managed, that are corrupt, that suffer from inflation, budget deficits, you know, all the diseases of developing or emerging markets. So suddenly it was possible to have such a crisis in in advanced capitalist world. And um, through central bankers, partly through other regulators, partly through um, a lot of economists who basically changed their mind, uh, there was now a consensus, even on the eve of COVID, that a crisis can happen. Nobody would tell you which particular type it would be, when it would start, who would be involved, but there was a realization that a system is vulnerable. So mentally, people were kind of more prepared than in 2008. But at this point, the positives end and uh, problems emerge. In 2008, the public sector in the UK essentially sustained us, sustained the economic recovery through 2012, really, because due to bailout packages, due to low interest rates, due to the uh, positive baggage of, uh, if you want, Labour governments of investing in public services, A lot of people who are employed in that sector were still employed. They still were part of the aggregate demand. They shopped, they purchased uh, houses, they participated in various economic and investment activities. They were an active part of the economy, even though eventually austerity came. And even though fiscally, the UK state uh, wasn't as proactive as the central bank. Another very important factor was China and other emerging markets at the time. They were healthy they were robust, they were full of money, they were desperate to buy assets in the West, they invested and helped the bailout of several companies and banks. None of these factors are now present. China and other emerging markets are themselves struggling with the, not only with the COVID crisis, but already with the economic slowdown before. The public sector had been weakened fatally by the years of austerity and uh, there is an additional uncertainty as to now the scale of not just the financial crisis but this is quite an unprecedented systemic real economy ecological epidemiological humanitarian if you want crisis of the world not just a particular part this is a global thing so uh, the enormity of this challenge is really uh, again we are uh, the only time we can compare it is the 1930s the period between the two world wars Period of very fragmented, isolated economies that each struggled with their own legacy of economic problems. Each devised different uh, economic solutions to to the crisis, but that was a decade of depression. We know how they got out of it, but we're still not quite sure whether the world now is even mentally ready for a radical overhaul of the system, institutions, and thinking, because this is what would be required now.
0: Yeah, I was going to say, I mean, doesn't the extreme nature of what's going on provide the world with a chance to, to redesign the system and to, to really think about, you know, who should the economy serve, what should... Correct, yes.
1: Any crisis provides such an opportunity, okay? In, in the broader philosophical way, like, crisis is always an opportunity. Trouble is, none of the crises in the late 20th century was really deep enough to for such a rethink, especially collective rethink. Uh, nationally or locally there were reactions to financial economic crisis, there was a change in political regime, there were changes in ideology, uh, more nationalist or protectionist policies were adopted. Um, there were some reactions to the wave of the 90s crisis when exporters started to accumulate a lot of money as reserves because they understood they need to be protected from future crises. Question now, and especially in current political climate, where a lot of leading economies, and I'm talking about Anglo, let's call them transatlantic economies, are governed by, let's call them not very clever people. This is the real factor. You're not really talking about any long-term strategic planning. You're talking about basic wise decisions or even pragmatic decisions.
0: Caroline, did you want to to come in and and sort of speak to anything Anastasia's just been saying in terms of the way that we might redesign the system? Maybe if we did have politicians of better quality, what sort of policies or what should their focus be right now?
3: I wonder also about the kind of economics and um, economic advice that we we are offering these uh, politicians as well, right? I agree. That the quality of the politicians <laughs> are not at his best at the historical moment, but I, I look at this crisis right now, and um, the way I see is, I mean, we can't blame the banks this time, right, On financial markets.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: So in that, in that sense, it makes um, different from the 2007 financial crisis. We can't blame uh, Keynesianism like we did in the 1970s or inflation, right? So for me, what that means is that we have to the the pandemic has forced us to evaluate some of the structural problems that we have in our global system of provisioning and i think these problems they are related very much to how economics uh in economic theory trying to think society Uh, to go back to the, the the public sector in the austerity, of course, the austerity since 2010 in the UK has been, you know, something that's, you know, the literature criticizing that is, is out there is outrageous. But to be very honest, we have a, a, a problem that has been coming since starting the 1970s in developing economies in the 1980s, which is this idea of how we design society and, and the idea of efficiency and market efficiency, which has led us literally unprepared for this kind of crisis we are actually facing. Uh, So I think there is perhaps what we need is also to challenge the dominant economic paradigm before anything else as well, because there are weaknesses. In that aspect. I think economics has been detached from, you know, a, more, a broader social societal analysis where we consider culture, the ethical aspect, and the environment uh, as well. And we, are, we have always prioritizing efficiency over resiliency. And that's why the, the economy is so vulnerable, because of how we are prioritizing efficiency. You know, I have hopes that Perhaps this is the time, and, and to go back to something that Aidan was saying regarding monetary and fiscal policy. I mean, I, I, of course, this is a debate that you can have a, you know, a, an entire podcast on that, but I wonder as well how we can move away from just these two kind of policies or even the dichotomy between state and market. How oh, we can have a, a broader way to perhaps highlight the foundational kind of economy we'd like or the care economy that the feminist economists are going on and on about So where we have, uh, you know, we look into the economy in a way that is not not just about profit, but it's about care, it's about protection, it's about collective choice, collective financing financing system. You know, I know a lot of this is very topic, but the reality is if you don't redesign things that way, we're not going to survive another pandemic.
0: I think that's a really great note to end on. We do have this opportunity to, to rethink the way that the system is designed and thank you for outlining just some of those ways that the economists, all of us can think differently about what the economy should look like. It, it, doesn't, it doesn't have to just be about profit, it can be about caring for other people, it can be caring about the environment and about sustainability. So thank you so much Carolina, Anastasia and Aidan for, for talking to us.
2: Thank you very much. Yeah,
0: thank you very much. Thank you very much, Annabel, for inviting me. That was Aidan Regan of University College Dublin, Carolina Alves of Cambridge University, and Anastasia Nezvetilova of City University of London. And that's it for our Recovery podcast series. Go to theconversation.com to read more research into the 2008 financial crisis and what lessons we can learn from it for the recovery we face today from coronavirus. Like Anastasia said, any crisis is theoretically an opportunity for radical change. As previous crises have shown, there may be setbacks along the way. As we heard in part three of this series, there were a number of waves to the 1918 flu pandemic, for example. But we also have a chance to build new and better systems to make changes that previously seemed impossible. Like creating a national health service that is free for everyone. Something we heard about in the fourth episode of this series on the wake of the Second World War. Do check out all of the other episodes in this series if you haven't already. We will also be doing a webinar in July on coronavirus and the kind of recovery the world should be working towards with a couple of leading experts. Stay tuned to the Anthill Twitter feed, that's at anthillpod, or sign up for The Conversation's free daily newsletter for the details. You can send in questions in advance via Twitter or email us on podcast at theconversation.com. We've had a bunch of emails from listeners which we really welcome, so do get in touch if you have any thoughts on the series. This episode of The Ant Hill was produced by Gemma Ware and me, Annabelle Bly, with sound design by Eloise Stevens. Thanks to you for listening. Goodbye.